welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media, where we discuss the work of the great science fiction writer Gene Wolfe, one story at a time. I'm Brandon Buddha, And I'm Glenn McDorman. In this episode, we're continuing our coverage of A Story by John V. Marsh, and this time we're talking about pages 90 through 107 of the 1994 Orb Edition. But before we get started, we have some exciting business. It's been a long while since we've talked about our story selection process, and you may not know about it at all if you've just joined us for The Fifth Head of Cerberus, as many of you have. That's right. It's a lot of fun. We are committed to reading all of the novels by Gene Wolfe, but he was such a prolific writer that we're only going to be able to cover half the stories in his oeuvre. And we decided to leave it to our Patreon supporters to select which stories we read. So very soon, we're going to be holding the Patreon vote to select the stories that we're going to read between The Fifth Head of Cerberus and Peace. The polls will be open between December 14th and December 20th. And if you've got some favorite stories you want to make sure get covered, you can participate by becoming a supporter on Patreon at the Archon level or higher. We're going to be covering... 12 stories, which is going to take about six or seven months for us to put out all of that content. And I'm pretty eager to see what people select, especially since there are some really good stories in this batch that are just going to have to get left behind that aren't going to make the cut. Yeah, it's a real bummer, but there's so much good wolf that I think we're going to get a lot of value out of the stories that we do end up covering. We also just want to make sure that we take a moment here and thank you all for your support and hope that you decide to support us to vote for what you want to see covered. Yeah, I look forward to posting those results online and seeing the heartache and what stories do, in fact, get left behind. But I think it is time now to turn to the story at hand. So, Brandon, what are your initial thoughts about this section of A Story by John V. Marsh? I really am loving this novella so far. Last episode, I think we've made a lot of assertions, a lot of suppositions, made a lot of guesses about what's going on in this story. And I think we'll be addressing a lot of what we talked about in our discussion last time, because Wolf, who is ever the master, feeds his readers just enough information to stay hungry. But I think we'll be making some corrections from our discussion and looking forward to what else is going on in this story. Last time, we left off with... Sandwalker, one of two twins, in his brother's dream. And his brother was taken by another tribe on this planet of these native people, Sinan. And we learn that some event is going to be taking place tomorrow, or at least starting to take place. There's, I think, quite a long timeline before the real event happens. And Eastwind blows a conch. So that's what we'll pick up in this episode. And we have carved out a pretty massive section of dense narrative. So this is going to be a long recap. There's a lot of detail and a lot to say about this story. So let's jump into it. So last time the narrative left off inside of Eastwind's story or in his perspective a little bit. But we begin now back in Sandwalker's. Sandwalker awakes from his dream of Eastwind's conversations with Last Voice and he's confused. He had expected that the priest of Thunder always would visit him in his dream, but he knows that Last Voice is not that priest, so he doesn't really understand what has happened to him. Hungry and in need of a new offering for the priest, Sandwalker leaves the cave to go hunt. Sandwalker muses about his great skill at hunting, and here Wolf employs a really remarkable metaphor when he writes that Sandwalker is more patient than the long-toothed cat who waits for two days on a flattened edge, all the while remembering her cubs that weaken as they mew for her and sigh and sleep and cry again until she kills. I just love that. It's absolutely beautiful. Sandwalker thinks about the other boys of his community who were not as good at hunting, how they would have to beg for food, and how they are dead now. And all of this paints a picture of a life in the hill country here that is difficult and an environment that is harsh and merciless, I think. I think that's absolutely right. This section really does a lot to emphasize the value of hunters in this community and what they bring to the table. The idea that they are duty-bound to bring food, not just for themselves, but for others, and their tie to their tribe. We also, I think, last time questioned who was in whose dream and the sudden shift of narrator or point of view. And 
this section immediately orients us and answers a lot of questions we had in the last discussion about are the names of the constellations Eastwinds or Sandwalkers? Who is doing the thinking? Whose world are we really fixed in? And it is Sandwalkers. And we learn later on that the people who have adopted Eastwind into their tribe do have their own names for constellations and their own respect and engagement with nature and the spirit world. And we're going to learn a little bit more about this ecosystem where the hill people live when Sandwalker goes out. Uh, He's hunting for two days, and we learn that there is a creature called an owl mouse, and uh, Sandwalker also sniffs out a nest and eats the babies and the hoarded seeds of one of these owl mice. We also learn here that Sandwalker's skin is the cold stone color of the dust of the hill country. So he really resembles his environment. And I think that's going to be something very important later on. And there is also, not now, but sometimes, a fog that is not seen until it touches the cheek, at which point it blinds. This is not a place I would like to live. These descriptions are beautiful, but I don't think I actually want to go live here. Right. I absolutely love everything about the world of the Hill People and the way they encounter the world through our point of view character, Sandwalker. I think it's absolutely amazing. We also learned about the animal called the tick deer. And thinking about the way these animals are named, they're almost named for the for the prey they eat, which makes the faint pheasant seem like a very strange creature, which we encountered last time. These compound named animals are encountered both in terms of what they are themselves, but then also their prey. Yeah, it was not a real pheasant is how I understood the word fain to be being used in that name. Uh, You're absolutely right. Tick deer is so-called because it is something that looks like a deer and lives by licking up the ticks, which are called brown blood drinkers that try to get on it. So, you know, an owl mouse, I I don't know that mice eat owls. Usually it's the other way around. So who knows what's going on with that? Yeah, there's some odd relationship between the creatures and the prey and their name. And I don't, yeah, you're right. The owl mouse is the reverse of the tick deer in some way, but who knows? It's a strange world. Well, as you said, we're about to meet the tick deer, and this is an important episode in Sandwalker's journey. He comes across the trail of this tick deer, and he follows it during the night. Here we get a marvelous description of blue Saint Croix, half sunk behind the smoking mountains of the West. And this is a description I would love to see interpreted by a visual artist, a painter, a mosaicist, something like that. But what really matters here is that as he follows the tick deer, Sandwalker hears the feasting song of the Shadow Children. He knows this means that they have killed the tick deer and that he has lost his prey. A Sandwalker muses about these Shadow Children, and it's, it's both a beautiful and an extremely important passage, so I'm just going to read it. In the great old days of long dreaming, when God was king of men, men had walked unafraid among the Shadow Children by night, and the Shadow Children, unafraid, had sought the company of men by day. But the long dreaming had given its years to the river long ago, floating down to the clammy meadowmeres and death. Uh, now I'm, I'm paraphrasing again. Here, here Sandwalker considers that a great hunter such as himself might attempt these old ways again. And, and now I'll return to Wolf's words to finish up this passage. God surely orders all things. The shadow children might slay by the right hand and the left while the sun slept. But what fools they'd look if they tried to kill him, if God did not wish it, by night or day. And God here in each of these instances, just to be clear, is a a proper noun. So this is seemingly a monotheistic notion. There seems to be two sentient species here on St. Anne right now, men and shadow children. And this is pretty exciting. Yeah, and this monotheism, which is either left over from oral tradition And the tribes people, through taking on that tradition, have continued to worship this god. The theology here is one of like predestination, right? It's like no, nothing will happen without God's ordering it or ordaining it. And this leads Sandwalker to believe he can act how he pleases or needs to in order to survive, and God's will will be done. It's a fascinating sort of complicated theological notion for what we'd assume to be kind of like a nomadic hill tribe. One thing we didn't point out is that this notion of the sleeping place comes up, which, as we see it used throughout the rest of the section we're covering today, 
really does indicate that these people are nomadic, at least within the hills. They move around a lot, probably to where there is prey so that the hunters can go and catch it. I did also want to say that your reading of the fog that reaches into the high country and is not seen until it touches the cheek when it blinds was really different than my own reading, which I found fascinating. To me, this is Wolf writing a beautiful description of the fog, which is the visual world is still there and you become enclosed in it. And then when it encloses you, you can't see the rest of the world. And so like the world is kind of limited in some sense by this fog, but not that there's some kind of property of the fog that is silent and invisible that blinds you. So it's just fascinating the way Wolf is writing this that can allow for so many readings. And I think you and I are going to come up against many such different readings as we continue to cover this story. Yeah, that's great, because I did take the invisible, the the characteristic of it being invisible, and the characteristic of it blinding to indicate that what Wolf meant there was actually something that is chemically damaging to the eyes of people, a kind of uh, acid smog or something like that. Your interpretation is equally legitimate in the the reading. Uh, I don't know that it's actually ever going to show up and become important, so we may never find a concrete answer to that. So I'd love to, as always, know what listeners have to say about that. It's such a challenging story to interpret because it's being told to us by somebody who is potentially very far removed from these events. It's by John V. Marsh, who is, I don't know, even more of a challenging writer than Wolf is in terms of the type of information he's giving his audience because he would expect his audience to know more about St. Anne than we do. And we're getting this very odd tour of St. Anne through the eyes of um, an anthropologist from Earth who's writing some sort of tribal hero's journey about it. And so there's just so many challenges in, in interpreting this text. I also want to say that I really love the section you read, and it speaks to this idea that God walked among men. He was the king of men in some way, and that either he has left or his spirit has left, and this has led to this fracturing of this society, and also a fracturing in terms of the spirit world and the physical world, the waking world of material and the dreaming world of the spirit. And that's really going to play a part in what we're going to talk about when we try to figure out just what's going on with the shadow people in our discussion. Yeah, we should point out here as well that we have just very recently, well, maybe not recently in time, but recently a number of stories in encountered in Alien Stones, Wolf invoking scriptural passages that treat God as a a ruler of men on earth. So this is clearly something that Wolf is thinking about here in the early 1970s. Well, we're not done with these shadow children yet and won't be for a little while. Bravely, Sandwalker approaches them where they circle the tick deer like bats around spilled blood. Their necks turn, and and really they spin, like the necks of owls. Morning met where much food is, Sandwalker says, apparently a polite greeting among the hill people. Much food indeed, answers an inhuman voice. But Sandwalker knows that for this inhuman voice, much food does not mean the tick deer. It means him. Shadow children are known to eat humans. Still, Sandwalker is brave. He says that he drove the tick deer to them, and now he wants a share of the meal. If not, he will kill the largest of the shadow children and eat him, and he'll leave the bones for the rest to dine on. At this point, one of the shadow children says, Men are not as you. Men do not eat the flesh of their kind. So clearly, the shadow children think of themselves as men, and think of the hill people as not men, and the hill people think of themselves as men and the shadow children as not men. And we might wonder if the word human should be employed here or not. This is one of the many complexities we're going to be dealing with, I think, when we get to our discussion. You describe the voice as inhuman that says much food indeed. But the description here, the actual sentence is a mouth not human answered. And so we're drawn directly into like a physical characteristic of this thing. And it's unclear, as you interpreted it, whether it's meant to be a metaphor to say that this is like a a different type of voice that is speaking, or whether there is a physical characteristic on this creature. Its mouth is not human, and that leads us to associate the Hill People and Sandwalker and his ilk as human. But then the response of the shadow person after being accused of being a cannibal and saying, like, I'm not a cannibal, you're a cannibal, is that they're calling themselves men. 
and it's clearly meant to invoke mankind. So there's two races here. I think that is abundantly clear. Yeah, I guess the question really is, is by race, do we mean species? And the way that fantasy literature uses race to mean distinct biological species, I think that, that'll be one of the questions. That's a great catch about my slip-up there. I was thinking a little bit of ahead in this episode when it's clear that Sandwalker is having trouble seeing everybody, and I just kind of backwardsly inferred, if that's a thing one can do, that he was describing the sound of the voice because we are going to get some detail here in just a, a couple paragraphs that he can't see them very clearly, or at least not all of them. Uh, and you already mentioned this, Brandon, that they do discuss for a little while which of their peoples consumes their own kind. And it's clear that they both think each other are cannibals, but it is also clear that the Shadow Children will, in fact, eat Sandwalker's people. So they may not think of themselves as as being in the same, the same group and off-limits for consumption. And moreover, we also learn here that the predator that Sandwalker was leaving treats for when he slept wasn't a grizzly bear or a mountain lion. It was the Shadow Children. He was leaving these little treats so they would eat the Fane pheasants and not eat him. Right, and the rock mice. And that answers another question we had. Was this protection against predators? Is it a kind of sacrifice to a god? The answer is still maybe both. It's not clear exactly what the shadow children are in relation to the tribes, or as they call them, the native little animals of this planet. Yeah, and I made a joke last episode about the baboon creatures in Operation Ares, but I actually think there are some similar characteristics here, or at least that Wolf is envisioning a very similar environment in which it is unsafe to travel by dark because something that is close to human might eat you, the actual human. Well, Sandwalker and the Shadow Children continue to threaten each other for a little while, and one of the Shadow Children even rises and takes a step towards Sandwalker. He is diminutive, and Sandwalker decides that if the Shadow Children do attack him, he will actually flee rather than fight, because they all have shorter legs than he does, and he can outdistance them. But this Shadow Child who has stood up and moved towards him says to the others, You must not harm him. He is sacred. Yet to Sandwalker, he then says, With my smallest finger, little native animal, I will break your bones until the ends burst through your skin. And that's pretty graphic. It's, it's also pretty well written. But I think, as you already pointed out, Brandon, we should not lose sight of the use of this phrase native animal here that is clearly going to be important when we're trying to figure out who these groups are. I did the thing you just did where I inferred backwards that these were two different voices because of what we learn about the voice that's speaking. And the one who says that he's sacred is different than the one who rises to face him. And so when we get to the kind of the reveal here in a moment, I'll explain why I think that is. Yeah, that'll be great. We've already mentioned that Sandwalker is having trouble seeing. We're going to see in a minute here that he doesn't know how many of these creatures there are, and he is confusing them. And so Wolf is giving us this narrative from his confused perspective. And uh, it would be uh, foolish and hubristic of us to, to think that we've interpreted these sentences properly. So I'm, I'm, we're going to do our best to try to take stock of how many people there are, who's doing what, who's saying what. But uh, we'll probably get some things wrong, and we'll look forward to hearing about it on the forums. Well, as Sandwalker prepares for violence here, the light of Sanquah flashes on the Shadow Child's face, and we get a description of it, very much as we did with Last Voice. This face is dark and weak, with huge eyes above sagging flesh. The cheeks are sunken, the nose and mouth are no larger than an infant's, and from them runs a thick liquid. Not a particularly attractive sight. Now, the Shadow Child touches Sandwalker's throat with its talons, and, and that's the word he uses here. But the voice which had greeted him invites him to sit and eat with them. The others draw him down beside the tick deer, and one of them says simply, You mustn't hurt him. He's our guest. It's all right to play with them, of course. It keeps them in their places. But let him eat now. So far, we've learned that these shadow children have the necks of owls, like the stems, he calls them, with the head that can turn easily, maybe not 180 degrees, but far enough that it looks to Sandwalker's mind an owl, and that, that at least some of them, or this one at least, has talons. I think later on, we get to see that some of them have hands. And it's just such confused imagery. We're getting glimpses and pieces of what these are. And because he can't see, we don't know what is an affectation or an ornament or 
clothing or anything like that. It's just the shadow people are spooky, and we don't know if any of it's natural or affected. And we also don't know how much of this language is metaphor. Now that he's been pulled down to the tick deer, Sandwalker eats, and the meal contents him. Sanqua sets, and now the constellations are visible again. Burning hair woman, bearded five legs, and rows of amethyst. As you alluded to already, Brandon, we get a note here that the people of the Meadow Mirrors, the Marshmen, that is to say, Eastwind's people, call these constellations by different names. And here we get two of them, Thousand Feelers and the Fish. And now that we know that we are dealing with hillmen and marshmen, we might also add this notion of Marsh to the possible understandings of the name John V. Marsh. The first voice speaks to Sandwalker some more. He is called the Old Wise One. You are our friend now, he says. There is a singing in you now, a happy song, though without counterpoint. And Sandwalker can actually see the stars on the horizon through the body of the Old Wise One. The Old Wise One is a ghost. The Old Wise One senses what Sandwalker is thinking and says that, no, he he is not a shadow of the dead. And I want to point out that if that's how ghost is being used here in the text, we might also rethink the business with the priest in Thunder always a little bit, where we, we had interpreted ghost there just to be a synonym for spirit. But they may actually have two technically distinct meanings in this world. I think that at this point in my mind, the priest is uh, just an old skeleton in the cave that has a uh, spirit life that has existed beyond the body. You mentioned that the voice who spoke first is the one who is the old wise one. And he's also the oldest of the shadow children and he calls him friend. And I think it's that voice that also addressed him earlier on or addressed the people and said he's sacred. So we have the voice which had spoken to him first telling the shadow children that he is sacred, and then the one who had risen to face him make the threat about breaking him. And then I think that first voice, again, also saying it's all right to play with them. So just this weird relationship between this old wise one and the native people of the planet. And they call them native, which means I think they're star travelers. And we're going to see that that's the case in in a moment as well. And the lack of regard that many of these shadow children have for the natives of the planet. We should also mention here that the shadow child is a constellation, and we should think about the relationship between why these people are called shadow children, and if that is tied to the constellation in some way. Yeah, there's a question there of which came first, or which is named after which, maybe is the better way to think of that question. And also, I think you're absolutely right about which voice it is that says that he is sacred. The narrative is not. But I think your interpretation is the one that makes the most sense, because otherwise it's totally incongruous that this creature says he is sacred and then grips him by the throat with his talons. Well, we've interrupted this conversation between Sandwalker and the old wise one, as we are wont to do. But on this topic of ghosts, Sandwalker says, we are all but shadows cast ahead of the dead. And that's a really interesting, if fatalistic, notion that we are all, I don't know, shadows of our future dead selves. The old wise one says that Sandwalker is wrong, and he will now explain what he actually is. He focuses on the singing that drew Sandwalker to them in the first place, and he names several other songs that the Shadow Children sing. There is the Song of Many Mouths and All Full. There is the Bending Sky Path song, the Hunting Song, and the Song of Ancient Sorrows. This last song is one that they sing when the constellation called the Fighting Lizard is high in the summer sky, and they can see their old home as a little yellow gem in his tail. And this is not a bad description of our own sun. And perhaps this is more evidence that we are observing an encounter between human settlers and an abo here on St. Anne. I think you and I are going to have different readings of this, but I think it's going to be so profitable for us to talk about the relation of the shadow children, the abos, and fifth head. We've seen in fifth head a total conflation of the characteristics of at least the two tribes. And we don't know what the shadow children contribute to that conflation of David's about this planet. I should also mention that we don't know if the shadow children are real beings at all. Again, this is a story by John V. 
Marsh. And we're going to continue to excavate what it means that this is a story. I want to highlight here that there are seven shadow children, which is, of course, a number of completion of perfection, and the eighth being the old wise one. I also want to point out that Sandwalker's response about our bodies being prisons in some sense for our soul is going to have some bearing on our conversation that the spiritual world to these people is more real than the physical one. This has ties back to our conversation about the Phaedrus in Fifth Head. And I think we're going to see some more connections to both the name of that character, Phaedria, what made us think of the Phaedrus, and ties to the way the demi-mundanes in that novella were described come up here. And I think we're going to be looking at these novellas as Wolf's exploration of the soul in the human body. And if that's the case, that's really awesome. <laughs> Something along those lines is clearly at play here already. And and something else worth pointing out here is that, just to make it clear, that although we may get in an argument about whether or not the Shadow Children are claiming to be humans from Earth or to come from the solar system at all, they are claiming that they have come from the stars, even though they're actually really behaving like fairies in a Middle English uh, Arthurian tale. And I think we'll talk more about that in our discussion. Uh, but for now, let's carry on with what the Old Wise One has to say. He goes on to explain that when the shadow children sing, they do not vibrate the air with their voices. Rather, they shake extension. Sometimes these songs disturb the dreams of Sandwalker's people, and the old wise one himself is the song that all the shadow children sing. He is their thought when they think as one. He tells Sandwalker to hold his hands before him and imagine them gone. That is what they vibrate. That is what they shake when they sing. Well, Sandwalker is incredulous about this, and he says, well, that is nothing. But the old wise one isn't done, and this next speech is important. It's, it's the old wizard giving wisdom and instruction to the young hero, so I'll just go ahead and read it. That which you call nothing is what holds all things apart. When it is gone, all the worlds will come together in a fiery death from which new worlds will be born. But now listen to me. As you are named Shadow Friend, you must learn before this night is over to call our help when you require it. It is easily done, and it is done this way. When you hear our singing, and you will find now that if you listen well, lying or sitting without motion and bending your thought to us, you may hear us very far off. You, in your mind, must sing the same song. Sing with us, and we will hear the echo of our song in your thought and know you require us. Well, now Sandwalker sings the day sleep song with the Shadow Children, and soon all of them are dancing around the bones of the tick deer in fine fairy fashion, I think. And now that day is breaking, he can see the Shadow Children more clearly. Uh, as we've said already, there are seven of them, uh, and they are a variety of ages, and there seems to be at least one woman, though it is hard for Sandwalker to tell. Their faces seem at once both young and old, or old and young, and of course, the old wise one is gone, and when Sandwalker turns to look for him, the shadow children scatter behind him, darting among the rocks and vanishing. And Sandwalker calls after them, go with God. The first thing I want to say is that this kind of benediction, this farewell, go with God, when connected with the notion that God was once king of men and shadow children and the hill people and marshmen all lived in harmony together before God exited the scene, I suppose is the indication there. Um, but it's a very much a, a sort of Edenic tale where God is, is present in some form and then is absent but gives some information about how to live, about why people are living that way. This is very mythic. And we're going to examine some of this in our discussion. That Sandwalker expects that this would be a greeting that the Shadow Children wouldn't be offended by, or a farewell that they wouldn't be offended by. I also want to say something about extension. This is a very, very odd notion, and I think Wolf is doing something very strange with it. Extension is, in terms of philosophy, the characteristic of a material substance, of substance. And how we characterize matter is that it is finite and separated by the limits of its extension. Extension is like where it is in the world. So like a table has some 
extension by it being, you know, four by four by three or something like that. That's its extension. And it's demarcated by its difference from other substances by the limits, its finite extension. I think Wolf is really doing something here with his notion of extension. And we will be going into that in some detail in our discussion. Yeah, I mean, this conversation is very much about two distinct ways of understanding what it is that separates one physical body from another, and therefore is ramped up in different conceptions of what matter even is to to begin with, which is one of the fundamental questions of philosophy. So this is gonna be great to get into. Well, with the Shadow Children now gone, Sandwalker has to decide what to do next. He's still on his mission to bring food to the priest and become his student. So he eats what remains of the tick deer and then stretches himself in the morning sunshine. At this point, he notices the back of a woman walking in front of him. He is walking faster than she is, and soon he sees that it is his mother. But when he tries to speak, he can't, and then he trips and falls. And then he finds himself sitting up, sweating from the heat of the sun. Sandwalker has fallen asleep, and he's pretty annoyed at himself about it. He thinks to himself that whenever he sleeps during the day, his spirit leaves his body at once and goes wandering. And if the priest were to come to him then, he wouldn't be there to receive him, which might anger the priest and prevent Sandwalker from becoming his student. So at this moment, with with this fear, Sandwalker decides that he must go back to Thunder always and sleep there. But he still needs another gift, a better gift than a fane pheasant. It's likely here that what Sandwalker dreamed was the dream of Eastwind's experience, that Eastwind is out during the day and somehow coming close to the tribe that his mother is a part of. And that will become, I think, pretty clear as we progress through this section. But for now, Sandwalker heads south after bigger game. The land rises slowly and The already sparse vegetation thins even more, and as he summits a ridge, he sees a tiny watered valley, an oasis of the high desert, which has managed to hold soil enough for real grass and a few wildflowers and even a tree. Places such as this, these types of oases, are of great significance for his people. It's possible to drink there and and even to stay for a few hours, and if one comes alone, the tree is likely to be less offended. So Sandwalker approaches the oasis courteously, as custom dictates, and he's just about to greet the tree when he sees a girl sitting among its roots, and she is holding an infant. And because there's a pond here in the oasis, a water source, she's able to clean her hair. And we learn that Sandwalker's unaccustomed to clean people. And now that draws the question of whether the description of his skin being the color of the environment is the result of him being typically covered in mud, especially as he's leaving a waterfall and walking around in the desert, or if there's something strange about his skin. It's a camouflage in the environment. Yeah, absolutely. We can't even take these descriptions at face value at all. Well, Sandwalker greets the tree ceremoniously, and he asks permission to drink, And he promises not to stay long. And this is very nice. We should all treat trees this way. The leaves of the tree murmur in response. And Sandwalker, of course, can't understand the tree. He doesn't speak tree. But he can tell that it doesn't sound angry. And so he takes that as permission and proceeds to the pool of water. When he is done drinking, Sandwalker turns his attention to the girl who is watching him fearfully. Morning met he says, and introduces himself in fine heroic fashion as Sandwalker the Far-Traveled, the Great Hunter, the Shadow Friend, his brand new title just earned last night. And the girl is Seven Girls Waiting, and the baby is named Mary Pink Butterflies, and, and Seven Girls Waiting has called the baby this because of her little hands. What I love about this is that we learned that there is a female naming convention as well, and that though all the women go by their names that relate to the natural surroundings or cultural happenings when they're being born, like cedar branches waving or seven girls waiting, that all of their first names are Mary, that this is likely the case. And that's very strange that we have this culture on a foreign planet where all the boys are named John and all the women are named Mary. This is also significant because the planet is named St. Anne, which is the grandmother of Jesus, as Mary is his mother. 
I also just want to point out that the leaves blowing in the wind, he hears as murmuring. And this is the first of two instances in this section, we'll get to the second one later, where nature is talking to him in some way, that he takes the sounds of the world around him happening in nature as having some spiritual significance or there's some sentient consciousness that he is not able to interpret. And that speaks to the respect that this culture has for nature, their reverence of the natural world. Yeah, once again, it's just not clear how much of this is metaphorical and how much of this is literal. It's not clear if Sandwalker simply has reverence for other living creatures or if he actually thinks the tree is sentient. The literal meaning of the language really suggests that he does. Right. I also love this name of the child, Mary Pink Butterflies, and this is very important. It's going to be important, I think, in our conversation, in our discussion when we get to it. Uh, I just also want to point out that this immediately sparked in my mind the lady in the pink dress that we meet outside of the father's library, that there's another pink girl in this story as well. Right. And as we heard Mark Armini say in the, the conversation that we had with him about the fifth head of Cerberus, there's also lots of butterflies in that story. And I'm excited to talk about this John and Mary naming convention. But since since now that I've brought Mark up, I will also mention that he actually thinks that this is a typo. This is the only place we're going to get this name, Mary, in the story. And he thinks this is a typo. So that'll be something for us to pull apart in our discussion. That's fascinating. That's really interesting because it works so well if it is a typo. Yeah, I can't wait to get to that. But we do still have a lot of narrative to get through before we get to our discussion today. The Seven Girls Waiting and Sandwalker talk about food and about why she is alone. And we get a really curious bit of dialogue, a bit of characteristic wolfish dialogue in which the characters know what they are talking about, but we have no idea She says that Pink Butterflies was new, and she couldn't walk far, and so the two of them slept up on the ridge that Sandwalker has just come over. And Sandwalker replies, I have never known that, but uh, I know how it must feel, sitting alone, waiting for them to come when no one comes. It must be a terrible thing. And her response is to say, you are a man. It will not come to you until you are old. There's maybe a lot hanging on what it is is here. Do you have any thoughts on that? I absolutely do. This is in the sentence that opens the story, and it's unusual. It's very strange. And we talked a little bit about what it meant. In in this instance, it clearly meant her being pregnant or womanhood in some way. The sentence is, a girl named Cedar Branches Waving lived in the country of sliding stones where the years are longer, and it came to her as it comes to women. Now, we know that the mating rituals here at least for the Marshmen, are very bizarre, that they have to stand the test of fire in order to procreate. We're going to learn a little bit about what the hill people think children come from, how people are able to have children. But I think it's clear through this episode, as we go through it, that fathering is a really foreign concept in this culture, but old men might be able to become fathers. And I think she's talking about the connection that a parent has to a child. We also know that children are maybe raised by the whole culture. And we're going to learn in a minute that her tribe basically left her in the sleeping place because they had to move on without her. And there's something very important about sleeping places that I haven't quite puzzled out. So I think she's basically been abandoned and is waiting for a new tribe or a new group of hill people to come adopt her. And that she believes that Sandwalker is a representative of either uh, some spirit guide who's going to help her survive or somebody who can take her to a new tribe. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I don't know that I would have read these lines any differently if you hadn't raised something in our last episode, which is the, the, the possibility of there being some kind of ritual human sacrifice that happens in the wake of childbirth to somebody. And I wondered if that wasn't something that was at play here with her being abandoned on this ridge. There's no explicit mention of this, and I wouldn't have thought about it if you hadn't already mentioned it, but it came into my mind here for sure. Right. It's so strange. And I guess I was coming at it in my reading from a really different point of view, that this woman and child are in this extremely spiritually significant location for these people. And she was left behind by the tribe, though we don't know why, though she has a dream about the tree in the oasis that maybe explains something. It is so unclear, though, that I don't have a good 
answer. And I kind of like the mystery of it a little bit. Yeah, me too. That's certainly something that's so beautiful about this story. As they continue to feel each other out, Seven Girls Waiting explains that the tree in this oasis is the father of pink butterflies. And she knows this because the tree told her so in a dream a long time before pink butterflies was born. And Sandwalker knows that they are all engendered in women by trees, but the trees don't usually like people to stay near them for more than one night, even their own kids. And this very much parallels what David says about the Abos back in the library in Port Mimizon. It's absolutely fascinating. Well, Seven Girls Waiting needs Sandwalker's help at this point, and what she really needs is food. But Sandwalker is still on his mission to get something for the priest. And this mission, becoming the priest's student, is of vital significance to his community. So there are really two competing obligations to real people. The Sandwalker goes off to hunt, but he promises to come back to her later. And when he does come back, he comes back with nothing. But in the meantime, she has actually caught a fish in the pond. And she offers it to him to take to the priest, but it's too small. And so Sandwalker shares it with her to eat. And now Sandwalker decides to go hunting again, but he's going to give up searching for something big, something like the tick deer that he can bring to the priest. And instead, he is determined to find something small for this woman and her child to eat for dinner. While he is gone on his second hunting expedition of the night, we get an absolutely gorgeous description of San Croix rising in the evening sky, though I, d- I don't think that we've actually had one of these descriptions that I haven't loved and wanted to call attention to. And of this one, Wolf writes that seven girls waiting looked through the leaves at the bright band of the waterfall and the broad seas and scattered storms of Sister World. And I don't often read speculative fiction with a lot of envy, but this line does make me sad that I will never get to experience this for myself. It's one of the most beautiful images, and Wolf is so good at getting us to experience what it would be like to have a planet rising nearby, as though like the storms on Jupiter were visible from the naked eye. In this section, while Sandwalker's hunting, he, he finds the sleeping place of the tribe or the group that left this girl behind, and It says that it's of no use or interest to him. The girl asks if Sandwalker would make the oasis his sleeping place with that night. And his response is, don't you have somebody in your sleeping place already? So there is like some sense of male and female relationship. This notion of the sleeping place is so heavily emphasized in this section of the story. And it got me wondering why we are really interested in sleeping places. And I think it has this connection to the mythic idea of the long dream, that these people view sleeping places as extremely portentous and significant as they move around, maybe trying to reclaim their spot in the world. And I think we're going to try to talk about if that's a little bit of what's going on in the action of this story, which is taking place not on the page at all when we get to our discussion. We are also dealing with an environment in which going to sleep is potentially perilous, whether it's from shadow children or some type of, I don't know, peacock bear or something we haven't met yet. But we take for granted that sleeping is a pretty safe thing to do in our society. But it's clearly not for these people. So I think that's there's a real physical, a real material reason for their concern, as well as perhaps some cultural or some spiritual reasons. Sandwalker returns from his second hunting expedition with a little bit of honey. And he wants to bring the woman and her baby to the source of this honey, though it is far away northeast, almost near the beginnings of the river. When they arrive, Sandwalker rips up the ground and brings out a honeycomb from what seems to be a bee's nest, and they eat all of it, and they even eat the white larvae. And we get here a a bit of Gene Wolfe's first rom-com, as he describes the two of them feeding each other the best parts of the honeycomb that they find, and then falling back happily into each other's arms and it goes well they have sex that night and here wolf uses a very interesting euphemism to describe sandwalker's erection he calls it a tree which might make this explanation about childbirth earlier much less literal than it seemed at the time it's fantastic it adds a layer of confusion because the girl is convinced that the tree is actually the father of her child. And so something in the culture has these people worshiping trees and believing they are able to produce children. But sex is had very freely, as we see in this scene, between 
male and female members of this tribe. And so fatherhood is not important at all, but the tree being a father is important. And so you get this odd mythic sense of how babies are made, but the people in the culture don't believe that that's how it's made. It's bizarre and wonderful. And I, and I kind of love this section. I also love this description of them eating the honey. I want to read it because I just love this phrase that Wolf uses. He says, they ate not only the honey, but the fat white larva digging and eating until their arms and faces, their entire bodies were sticky and powdered with the bee rotten soil. I just think that's an amazing description. Yeah, this is the first time that I've ever actually thought that it would be fun to consume the larvae of insects. It actually made this sound like a gourmet meal that was like soul food. Yeah, and it actually is soul food, as we'll see in just a moment. Well, after all of this sort of rom-com business and the gourmet meal of bee larvae and this sex, Sandwalker and Seven Girls Waiting sleep together with pink butterflies tucked between them to stay warm, and they're all pressed in what Wolf describes as a tangle of legs and size, a really beautiful, really romantic description. The roaring of thunder always comes to Sandwalker's ears, and he gets up and he enters the priest's cave. And this time, he can see everything, even though it is as dark as before. Somehow, he has found the power to see without eyes and without light. He finds the priest on his bed, surrounded by the bones of offerings. And Sandwalker apologizes for not bringing a gift of his own, but then he realizes that he is holding a honeycomb and a mass of larvae. The priest takes these and gives Sandwalker the skull of some sort of animal. And as Sandwalker watches, the skull returns to life, the flesh growing back around it. It is the head of an otter, very much alive and looking into Sandwalker's face. In the otter's eyes, he sees the river, and he sees its whole course from high up in the hills, through thunder always, and finally slowing to a broad, lazy river winding through the meadow mirrors. He sees what the marshlands are like, the hare herons and the egrets, yellow frogs and the otter. I don't know if it's significant here, Brandon, but Wolf has spelled egret the French way here. He's just given us the French word rather than the English. And given how important French is on Saint Croix and the name of Saint Anne and in Port Mimizan, I think that's worth pointing out. I have no idea what to make of it. For just a second, in the middle of this vision of the river, Pink Butterflies squirms against Sandwalker and almost rips him from what is clear to us as a dream. But uh, he falls back asleep and returns to the dream quickly enough. And now he stands beside the broad river in the last hours of the night. Standing near him are the people of his community, his family. There's Flying Feet, Old Bloody Finger, Leaves You Can Eat, Sweet Mouth, and also his mother, Cedar Branches Waving. And there are also two men whom he doesn't know, but whom he recognizes as the people of the Meadowmeres, the the Marshmen. He knows that these people drive their young men from women until fire from the mountains proves their manhood and leaves their thighs and shoulders puckered with scars, which these men have, and that's how he recognizes them. And this is another metatextual moment when David's imagined culture, this culture he really kind of makes up in the library in Port Mimizan, is actually coming to life in this text. One of these scarred men chants something, and then the men grab flying feet, and they drown him. Sandwalker awakes, and he's trembling, and there's a a pressure on his chest. And this is a real visceral, physical nightmare he's having. It is dawn, and when Seven Girls Waiting awakes, he tells her about his dream. And he says that he thinks the priest is helping him in his dreams, This one and the one he had in the cave and even the one of walking with his mother. He infers that the men of the marsh have taken his people and he must go to them. And once more, this is straight from Yoda's training montage on Dagobah in The Empire Strikes Back. So just one more bit of proof. (laughs) That's a great point. And yeah, you're absolutely right. That's hilarious. And I would not have even thought to make that connection. I was making more of a connection between Obi-Wan like disappearing at the end of A New Hope uh, as he gets like stricken down and the old man, you know, of the of the shadow children and that this weird kind of I I think all of Star Wars is just lifted from uh, from this story. That's kind of my new belief about what's going on here. Yeah, I I think it might be true. It might also be true that that they're both pulling from this the same source material, and we're going to actually talk quite a bit about that source material in the discussion. 
Well, moreover, even though it's a long way to the marshes, Sandwalker's dream of the otter has shown him how he can get there much more swiftly than should be possible. So Sandwalker goes to the edge of this little stream that they're camped by, the stream that is the beginning of the Great River, and he plunges in. The current takes him, and he spins onto his belly, and he thinks of the otter. He imagines the body of the otter, and he imagines that he shares its specialized features that make it good for swimming, and then he strokes and shoots ahead. And that brings this section to a close. We're left with the question, did he become an otter, or was he given a gift of imitation in the way, I don't know, martial arts moves are based on the movement of animals and the study of that sort of thing? I hope we figure out more about that as the story goes on. There are two things I want to point out before we end the recap. The first is that the ghost of the priest comes to Sandwalker, not after Sandwalker has brought a gift to the priest, but after he has reached a certain level of strength of survival. He's had two really big meals in two days, maybe three if you include the fish. And this is somehow more acceptable to the priest than the pheasant, the feigned pheasant, which would just become more bones in the cave. But we do see a weird use of the bones here take shape at the end of the story when the priest uses them to show Sandwalker the form and body of the otter. It's very, very strange. I also want to point out that in the dream that Sandwalker has about the kidnapping of his people and their being driven back to the meadow marshes, the Sandwalker himself dreams of drowning flying feet, and that this is clear that Eastwind has done this. Eastwind is the one who has drowned flying feet. And what Wolf doesn't narrate is what must be the type of horror of this scene for the tribe who sees somebody they recognize perhaps as one of their own as these twins, maybe having withstood fire in the five days he's been gone or so, maybe longer, and coming back to kidnap or to take the tribe. We don't know why this tribe has been taken. So just a lot of questions that we're going to have to answer. Well, that's going to do it for the recap section of this episode. Join us next time later this week for our discussion of this section of a story by John V. Marsh. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDormand. As always, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. And uh, keep in mind that our next patron poll is happening very soon. The next time, we'll continue with the discussion of this section. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. Farewell.